Turn in your Bibles this morning to 2 Samuel chapter number 19. It's not as dramatic when I say it as it is when Johnny Cash says it is. I don't know why that is. I don't, I don't have that rich baritone, I guess. And, uh, you know, it's just not as, not as, not as impactful. Amen. But, uh, that's all right. I'm glad you're here today. Thankful more than that that the Lord's here today. Amen. Thankful for His presence and uh, He's already been working in hearts. Man, I appreciate that good song. What a blessing that was. I'm glad there's nothing you're ever going to face bigger than God is. Nothing too big for God to handle. Uh, I'm glad there's nothing ever surprise you that's going to surprise God. Uh, he's got control of it all. Amen. And uh, I'm thankful for that this morning. Don't we, don't we serve a good God? I tell you, man, I mean, I know there's only one God, and you do as well. The Bible's clear in teaching that, and even logic and reason would tell you uh, that there could only be one God, that all gods can't be uh, true, that there can only be one way. But I would say this, even if I, if, if I could decide who and what God was, and I had every single false God that was created by art and man's device, as the book of Acts says, if I was to just scan the pantheon, of pagan religion, I wouldn't want any different one than the one I've got. I mean, I wouldn't want one other than the one I got. Man, there's never been a God as good as the God that we have. And aren't you thankful He's the real God? He's the God of the Bible. Uh, he's not a figment of our imagination. Uh, you say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, because I didn't find Him. He found me. He came to where I was. A uh, ten-year-old boy, I wasn't looking for God, but He came and found me. Amen? So I... I know I didn't make him up, amen. He, he came and found me where I was, saved me, changed my life, uh, gave me a hope in, in him and a home in heaven. I mean, I, I didn't come find him. I didn't sit down and scratch him out on a piece of paper. He came and found me, amen. And I know he's real. I've seen him work in my life. I've seen him work in yours. I'm just, man, I'm thankful. What a great God that we have this morning. Man, we got much to be excited about, amen. And uh, praise the Lord for that. Turn in your Bibles, Second Samuel chapter number 19 this morning. I'd like to read just a few verses uh, for you. We've been sort of preaching around this for a few services now. We don't call them series anymore because then I feel obligated to finish them. But, uh, so we just sort of say we're preaching around the same area in the Bible. And uh, we have some thoughts that sort of seem to go together. And that's what we've been doing for several services now. But I want you to take note this morning of a familiar character. I think to many students of the Bible, you'll know this name the moment that you read it. If you don't, we'll explain who he is. But uh, his interaction with King David upon David's return back to Jerusalem, back to his rightful place upon the throne. The Bible says in verse 24, In Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. David's returning back from his exile. And had neither dressed his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. And it came to pass when he was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Wherefore winnest thou not, not thou with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For thy servant said, I will saddle me an ass that I may ride thereon and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. But my lord the king is as an angel of God. Do therefore what is good in thine eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? The king said unto him, Why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, Thou and Ziba divide the land. Mephibosheth said unto the king, Yea, let him take all, for as much as my lord the king is come again in peace 
unto his own house. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. What a blessing to be here today. Lord, thank you for meeting with us and stirring our hearts, ministering amongst us, opening our eyes to the truths that are set before us in your word. Lord, comforting us, encouraging us, but Lord, also convicting us, reproving us in areas of our life that need change. I just pray that that work, that work that only you can do, would be done today in our hearts. And we know it will only be done if we will be willing to hear your word and hear what the Spirit of God deals with us about. I pray that we'd have open ears and hearts to your working today. And I pray, Lord, that you, your will would be accomplished in us. Now, Lord, there could be some in this group that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Uh, if they died, they'd die in their sin right now. They'd die without hope. They'd die really without knowing where they'd go. But Lord, I, I'm thankful that you sent your Son to the cross of Calvary to die in their place, Lord, to pay their sin debt so that they don't have to pay it themselves, so that they can believe on your Son and be forgiven and be pardoned of their sins. And Lord, beyond that, you rose your Son from the dead. He raised in power and in glory, and He's alive. And if we'll call unto Him, He'll hear us. He'll answer us, Lord. And that sinner that's lost can pray to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. And He's alive today to hear and to answer that prayer and to grant forgiveness and to save us and to change our lives. Lord, thank You for doing that in my life. And I pray if there's any under the sound of my voice that are lost, that that has not happened for them. I pray that they'd not leave this place before they come to You and ask You to forgive them and save them that they might be eternally saved. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, there's a little bit of context that I think is necessary for us to see the impact of this interaction, this meeting between Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, and he's the grandson of Saul, but it's not uncommon in the Bible saying that he is a son of Saul or a descendant of Saul to call him that, the son of Saul. Uh, he is the son of Jonathan, who was the friend of King David. This interaction, this meeting between Mephibosheth and David, it, it's significant. There's some amazing things we can see right off the cuff. But if we look at the context of this passage a little more clearly, we find that it is even more important. It is even more meaningful once we know what is going on. Uh, we uh, tell this story. It begins back in chapter number 15. Now, you don't have to turn there. But in chapter number 15, the events begin to take place that lead to this moment. The Bible tells us that Absalom, the son of David, uh, he, uh, through bitterness towards his father over some family matters that had taken place, he purposes in his heart that he wants to steal the throne away from his father David. So he begins to woo and manipulate and win the hearts of the children of Israel until he has enough support that he can declare himself king and expel his father David from Jerusalem, from the kingdom. And that's exactly what he does. David flees into exile. He spends some time there. Eventually a conflict ensues. Absalom is killed by Joab, one of David's generals. And David, a way is made for him to return back to his rightful place on the throne in Jerusalem. And we find in these intervening chapters between chapter 15 and chapter 19 that people responded in different ways to this reality. They responded in different ways to Absalom ascending the throne, to David being kicked off of the throne. Now you may say, well, preacher, that's interesting. It's amazing to know the political background, but what does that have to do with me? Well, when I read this passage and, and really distill it down to some basic ideas, I find some similarities to the day that we're living in. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, I would say this, number one, it was a time when the rightful king has been rejected. David is God's man. He is God's king. He is God's anointed. Do you know the Bible tells us that there was a son of David later on in the New Testament 
who likewise uh, was uh, sent and appointed for a throne, who should have sat upon the throne, even David's throne there in Jerusalem. But just like they did with David, they rejected this king. They spurned this king. The only difference is, in this king's case, they took him and nailed him to a cross. We're living in a time today where uh, even now, though he is the king, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus this morning. He is the king. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. Uh, his name is above every, every name, above every dominion, above every power, above every throne. There ain't a throne that don't belong to Him. They all belong to Him. But He is, even to this very day, rejected by this world. The Bible says He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. The Bible says He came into the world, uh, and He was the light of the world, but men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Even to this very day, uh, the world would rather have Caesar as their king uh, than the Savior as their king. It's a time when the rightful king is rejected. But it also reminds me of today because it's a time when a rebel king is ruling. Absalom is not the uh, rightful heir of the throne. In fact, he couldn't sit on that throne as long as David was still alive. Uh, Absalom had no place upon that throne, but he stole that throne. He wrestled it away from his father. And now he is a pretender to the throne, but his authority is being recognized by the people of the realm. And that reminds me of another rebel king. The Bible tells us uh, that the devil is the god of this world. He has no right to the throne of this world. He has no right to the authority of this world. But he has claimed that authority for himself. And because of the wickedness of the human condition, mankind has embraced him. Now you might say, well, preacher, I don't believe we're surrounded by rank devil worshippers. Number one, you might be surprised. Number two, I would say this, even though it may be true that a vast majority of people may not be actively, conscientiously following the devil, they certainly are following his ways and his lies and his deceits and his corruption. Uh, you look around at this world that we're living in, it's obvious it don't have the touch of God upon it as far as authority and, and administration. It has the mark of the devil all over it. He's ruling and governing this world. And that's why this world is in the mess that it's in. Let me encourage you a little bit. Uh, uh, listen, Absalom was never going to be the rightful heir of that throne as long as David was alive. Can I tell you, the devil will never really be the rightful owner of this world, not as long as the real king is alive. And uh, he's alive to never die anymore. Amen. A rebel king is ruling. But then there's a third thing that reminds me of these days we're living in. Uh, the Bible says in chapter number 19, sort of the beginning of our, of our story today, back in verse 15, it says, So the king returned and came to Jordan. So this is a time when the rightful king is rejected, a rebel king is ruling, but the rejected king, he is returning. You know, the Bible teaches us the very next thing on God's calendar, the very next thing on God's prophetic timetable is for the Lord Jesus to return for the church. Uh, we use the term the rapture of the church. He's coming back. The very last promise that was given in the Lord's earthly ministry uh, was that this same Jesus that you've seen ascend into heaven will in like manner come again. And even today, just like the Thessalonian believers, uh, we have turned from idols to serve the living God and to wait for the appearing of His Son, that's what we're waiting for. We're waiting for the trumpet to sound, for the Lord to return, for the dead in Christ to rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them uh, in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So the rightful king, he's coming back. He's coming back. The question is, what does that mean to us? What does that do in our lives? When we look at this sort of, of catalog of characters in these chapters, we find that different people responded 
different ways. Now, some might be tempted to say, well, preacher, uh, the old king's out, the new king's in. You just bow the knee and do what the new king says. A lot of the problem we're living in in the day that we are in. But I would say this, just because a rebel king was on the throne, not everybody went along with what that rebel king wanted. The Bible tells me back in chapter 15, verse number 15, the king's servants said unto the king, talking about David's servants, said unto the king, Behold, thy servants are ready to do whatsoever my lord the king shall appoint. Now think about that. Here's David. He's rejected. He's spurned. He is fleeing the city of Jerusalem. But there's still a group of people that say, We are your men. We are your servants. You know, that reminds me that even though most of the world may be bought in to satanic lies and deceit and wickedness and depravity, and I know that's the case. I've got a television just like you've got one. i got that computer box just like you've got one. I can see it just like you can. It reminds me of this. Though that may be the majority, that doesn't have to be the totality. There can still be some that serve the Lord. I won't really preach it, but let's just notice their statement. Notice what they thought about all of it. Well, number one, as far as they were concerned, their station was unchanged. I like what they say here. The king's servant said unto the king. It does not say King David's servant said unto King David. You know why? Because in their heart and mind, nothing had changed. He was the rightful king before, and he's still the rightful king. Uh, Can I tell you, listen, for the believer, for the heart of the believer, it don't matter. Hey, the Lord Jesus, He is our ultimate authority. It doesn't matter what earthly thrones rise. It doesn't matter what earthly powers flex. He is our ultimate authority. He is our king. It doesn't matter what pretenders sit on a throne. He is the true king. As far as they were concerned, their station was unchanged. Not only that, their steadfastness was unwavering. They said, thy servants are ready. Ready. At a moment's notice, we'll do anything that you need. Now, can I just say this? They couldn't have been ready for what was going on at that moment. They didn't have to be ready for everything. All they had to be ready to do was serve the king. They weren't ready for the throne to be wrestled away from David. Who would have been ready for that? They, they weren't ready for a pretender to be sitting on the throne. Who would have been ready for that? They weren't ready to be fleeing for their lives. Who would have been ready for that? What did they mean when they said, we're ready to do whatsoever my Lord the King appointed? You know, let me say this. There's a lot of distress in the days that we're living in. I understand that. And we say for ourselves, well, how do I know I'll be ready when this time comes and when that time comes and I feel so unprepared for the things that we're facing? Can I say this? As long as you're ready to serve the King, the King will take care of everything else. I'm not saying that prudence is not advised. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan and, and, and be mindful and so on and so forth. But I'm saying this. We don't have to be ready for every contingency. We just have to be ready to serve the King. Whatever He wants out of our life. I see their steadfastness was unwavering and their service was unconditional. They said to do whatsoever my Lord the King shall appoint. It didn't matter what it was. They said anything that you want, that's what we'll do. Now that's what a servant is. A lot of us would say we're servants of the Lord. But really what it is, we're contractors of the Lord. Uh, There's certain things that we believe it's acceptable for God to ask of us, and we're willing to do those things. But then other areas of our life that we say, well, you've just asked too much. You've gone above and beyond what I expected, and so I'm unwilling to do that. Now, that's how a contractor talks. That's how a union rep talks. Somebody say amen to that. That ain't how a servant talks. Servant says, hey, I'm here. I belong to you. I I serve at your pleasure. Whatever you need from me, that's what I'm here to do. Now, that's what we ought to be for the Lord Jesus. We ought to be servants of the Lord. So evidently, not everybody had to go the way that Absalom wanted them to go. Not everybody had to to yield and and, and, and capitulate and give in to the the direction of the day. There were some folks that said, we're going to serve the king no matter what. 
As we've dug through these characters, we found, I mean, just a whole different assortment of individuals. Some of them responded by following the Lord uh, faithfully, like Zadok the priest. Some of them, like Hushai uh, the, the archite, they, uh, they uh, conquered through their counsel. They were a witness and a voice uh, for the king. Some of them, like Ziba, the servant of Saul, who uh, was also the servant of Mephibosheth, he was abusive in the Lord's absence. We've seen all sorts of people. But now we come to a man by the name of Mephibosheth. Now, what can we say about this man, Mephibosheth? He is the son of Jonathan, who is the son of Saul. He's the grandson of the former king. He was a man that is defined basically in four ways. I would say that when we read his story in the Bible, the first thing we learn about Mephibosheth is he is a lame man. Uh, he is a crippled man. He is a man whose feet don't work. He is impaired from being able to travel under his own power and under his own well, it's an interesting story how Mephibosheth became lame. Well, he wasn't born that way, but he became that way. Uh, the Bible tells us that whenever news reached uh, the nurse of Mephibosheth, he was just a little baby, a young, a young boy, whenever news reached him that his uh, father and grandfather had been slain, the nurse ran, was fleeing from that calamity, and fell and fell on the little child and maimed his feet. You say, preacher, that's, that's interesting. What does that say to me? Well, it sort of reminds me of a sinner. <laughs> Say, what do you mean, preacher? Well, here's a lost sinner, unable to save himself, unable to redeem himself, really unable to walk whatever direction he wants, because when a person's lost, they're in bondage. They may think they do anything that they want, but the Bible says they're just walking according to the course of this world, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. They're just doing what their flesh tells them to do. They're not able to move in whatever direction they want. And you know how they got that way? Just like Mephibosheth, mankind was maimed in the fall. It wasn't the fall of the nurse but it was the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden whenever mankind ate of the tree and fell into sin and depravity. All of mankind fell with him. It wasn't Mephibosheth that fell, but he sure enough got landed on. Let me say this. Hey, it wasn't you or I that fell, but we sure enough got landed on. We weren't in the Garden of Eden, but we got that same sin nature that Adam and Eve got Likewise, he is a lame man. He is unable to take care of himself. But we see this, not only is he a lame man, he is a loved man. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, the Bible tells us back in chapter 9 of Second Samuel that David wakes up one day and he's just feeling a little gracious in his heart. He looks around and he says, Is there yet any left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? In other words, he woke up one day and said, Ain't nobody for the house of Saul ever done nothing for me except for Jonathan. And because I love Jonathan, because Jonathan was my friend, because Jonathan was willing to give his life for me, I want to do something on Jonathan's behalf for the house of Saul. And he begins to inquire around and say, now who might be left? And there's a man by the name of Ziba. He is the servant of Saul. And they bring Ziba to David. And uh, David asks him the same question. Who's left of the house of Saul? He says, well, there is one boy down in a city called Lodabar. All right? Slumdabar. I mean, Lodabar was the worst part of town you could be in. Uh, he's down there. He's a cripple. He has nothing left. He's living in the land of no bread and no peace and no security. And uh, he is the only one left. David says, that's exactly who I'm looking for. You know, David wouldn't have wanted to exalt a king because it wouldn't have meant much to him. But if he could get this old broken, crippled fella down in Lodabar, he could really change his life. So he sends Ziba down with that cart to go pick up Mephibosheth. And he brings Mephibosheth back to the uh, throne room of David. And Mephibosheth uh, lays himself before David. He cries out. He calls himself a dead dog. He says, I have no right to be here. You should have killed me. Why didn't you kill me? He probably thought he was being brought there to be killed. 
But instead, here's what David does. He restores him to the place that he had once been before. And I would say this, he even puts him in a better place than what he fell from. He puts him in a better place than what he fell from. When he uh, had his legs, he was going to grow up and have to fight for the throne himself. But now he don't have to fight for the throne. He is made a son of David by proxy. Legally speaking, he sits at the king's table. He don't have to fight the battle on his own. That's better than where he was before he fell. And he makes him a son of the king, restores the lands to him. And he gives Ziba to be the servant of Mephibosheth. And the agreement is that Ziba and his sons, he has 15 sons and 20 servants, they're going to till the land that had belonged to the house of Saul. And they would eat of that, and then the rest of it they would give to Mephibosheth, and it would belong to him because he was the rightful owner of the land. So in other words, you say, Preacher, what does all that mean? Well, when I think about Mephibosheth, here's a man that's lame from the fall, but the king, because of another, by the way, uh, Jonathan, for Jonathan's sake, uh, a kindness is done to Mephibosheth, not because of Mephibosheth, but because of somebody else that loved King David, that cared about King David, that was willing to give his own life for the sake of King David. That reminds me of what God did on the behalf and for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came down and got me in my brokenness. Uh, I didn't deserve it. I didn't do nothing to earn it. He wasn't doing it for my sake. He was doing it for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ. But He picked me up out of my despair, brought me, and He didn't just put me back like I was before. He put me in a better position than Adam ever was in. He put me in a better position than man was in in the fall because now the throne isn't something that I have to fight for. It's secured. And all I have to do is just sit at the king's table, eat grits. Man. He is a loved man. He is a man that is loved by the king. I'd say this, we also learn he is a laboring man. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, it's interesting. His name, Mephibosheth, means dispeller of shame. And we think that's the name that was probably given to him when he was a child and probably given by his father because his father was embarrassed at the wicked actions of his father, of King Saul. So Jonathan probably names Mephibosheth Mephibosheth, the dispeller of shame, because he's hoping that he'll restore some of the dignity to the office of being king that his father, that Saul, had so squandered. But do you know, when we study the life of Mephibosheth, there's a nickname that they give to him. We find it in another place in the Bible. He goes by the name Merib Baal. It's an interesting name, isn't it? You can hear the name of the false god Baal in there. Do you know what that name means? It means contends with Baal. You say, preacher, why is that interesting to you? Well, because it tells me this in some way, in Mephibosheth's life. Though he's a cripple, though he is a man that is impoverished, though he is a man that has no respect amongst his peers, in some way he fought for the Lord and fought against idolatry to such a degree that they say, oh, that's old bear fighter right there. That's the one that contends against idolatry and against false gods. It tells me this, it don't matter what my brokenness, I can still serve God. I can still serve God. I may not be able to do what somebody else can do. I may not be able to do what I can do in a way others can do. But in some way, and that's how Mephibosheth was, though he was a lame man, he purposed to serve the Lord in whatever capacity that he could. He's a laboring man, but in our text before us, we learn this about him. He is a loyal man. He's a loyal man. He is a man that in spite of David's exile from the kingdom, he never gave up on the king. He spends that entire period of time looking and longing for the return of the king. You know, the Bible tells us that that's to be our disposition. We're to be laboring for the Lord, but we're also to be looking for the Lord. And as far as our heart's cry is concerned, we're to be longing for when the Lord returns and is present with us once again. I'd say this, when we see Mephibosheth, we see a man that is looking and longing for the king's return. And when we read our text this morning, we find certain 
hint, certain evidence that this was real in his life. Now let me pause and say this. Every single service, except maybe this morning, I can't remember, but every single service around here, we announce that the Lord's coming back. We say it all the time. I praise the Lord for that. I don't remember how or when we started. I've been doing it a long time now. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that's a good thing. I think it's good to be constantly reminded that the Lord is coming back. But I would say this. How much do we allow that to shape and mold our way of living? If we really believe the Lord's coming back, that's going to change the way that we approach life. And you'd be able to see it just like you could see in Mephibosheth's life that he believed David was coming back and he couldn't wait till David got back. He was a different man because of this dynamic in his life. And I wonder if these things are present in my life and in your life. What evidences can we see? I want you to notice four of them with me this morning and then we'll be done. If a person was to look at Mephibosheth, the first thing they would be struck by is the complete unhygienic state that he was in. The Bible says in verse number 24, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king and had neither dressed his feet nor trimmed his beard nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. Now you may say, well, preacher, what does that teach me? Well, it teaches me this. This was a man that had great patience concerning the return of the king. We don't really know. We can't put a, a number of days on the time between when David left and when David returned. And Mephibosheth did not know how long it would take for David to return, but he purposed in his heart that his life was going to be different as long as the king was gone. And with painstaking patience, he maintained that commitment. Can I say this? The word patience in the Bible, I think it gets misconstrued sometimes. I think, I think we think of the idea of patience as being comfortable with waiting. But that's not what patience means. Nobody's comfortable with waiting. So how do y'all know that, preacher? Because half y'all are thinking about Cracker Barrel right now. As I live and breathe, you're sitting there thinking about that country boy breakfast and you're trying to decide between the pork chop or the sirloin steak. That's what you're doing right now. And I don't begrudge you that. I, hey, listen, none of us like to wait. All right? Patience does not mean being comfortable with waiting. Nobody's comfortable with waiting. What it does mean is being committed to wait and to do so with the right attitude. In fact, we could define patience as waiting in the right spirit and with the right attitude. And that's what we see in Mephibosheth. Now, understand, I, I, I'm not advocating that any of us quit trimming our beard or, or, or putting shoes on, clipping our toenails. I guess that's what it means, dressed his feet, didn't clip his toenails, uh, or washing our clothes. But I do think there is a parallel here. In other words, his patience could be seen, number one, he had patience in living differently in light of the king's absence. He said, my life cannot be what it was before while the king is gone. You know, part of our problem in our life is really if the Lord came or went in our life, you couldn't tell a difference. We wouldn't live any differently. You know the problem with a lot of churches today, and, and I hope this isn't true of ours, but a lot of churches today, if the Lord never shows up, it wouldn't matter. They just keep on doing what they're doing like nothing uh, was changed. Hey, listen, don't think the rapture is going to put churches out of business. Some of them are going to do real well. Some of them are going to do real well. Some of them, it wouldn't matter if the Lord was present there or not because they're not running off of His presence or running off of a program. Now, God's not the author of confusion. I'm not advocating chaos. But I am saying this. We ought to love the Lord enough and we ought to, we ought to be dependent on the Lord enough that if He walked out of our life, we'd sure enough know it. 
Now, thankfully, he won't walk out of our life. You know that. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. But Mephibosheth is a man that now that the king's gone, he said, how can I live the way I lived before the king left now that the king's gone? What would that say to the world if I just kept on living like he was here when he's not here? Now, there's a parallel to you and I. Uh, he allowed his external existence to be in disrepair. But, you know, in our life, we should really do the opposite. We ought to be committing to live a life of a good testimony in light of the fact that the king is not present here with us. And every single day, you know, I don't know about you, I, I, you know, I have to, listen, if I go two, three months without a shower, it starts to bother me. It does, you know, I mean, it's, and you imagine how, how difficult that must have been. And remember, this man is an invalid. He, he's not a man that is active and can easily get up. I mean, the chances he probably had bed sores, he probably had all kinds of, of issues from being in this condition, but he made up his mind. He said, no matter how uncomfortable it is for me, I'm not going to go back to living the way that I was before the king left. You know, in your life and mine, sometimes in living like a Christian, in, in making decisions to live in a way that the world can look at our life and tell that we believe that the king is coming back, sometimes you'll be called upon to, to live in ways that your flesh doesn't like, to, to be denied of things that your flesh don't want to be denied of. Every rotten thing crawling around the world, your flesh wants. And, and you can't yield to that. You can't give in to that. There may be things that even with public pressure, society, your family, they may say, well, you're a fanatic. You're living in a crazy way. Why do you have to do that? But just remember, listen, it ain't about blending in. It's about standing out. He, he, he determined. He had patience in living differently. But then number two, he had patience in looking deliberately. It says, from the day the king departed until the day he came again in peace. He didn't give up on it. Every single day he looked for David to return. And that's what kept him living the way that he was. Part of the reason we struggle to maintain consistency in our life is we get to believe when we have a long time to course correct. We think, well, you know, if I slack off and quit serving the Lord for a little while, that'll be all right. I'll get things right. But if we really believe that this day that we're living could be our last day, would we squander it that way? I promise you we wouldn't. Not if you love the Lord. Not if you believe the Bible. Not if you take seriously your testimony. You wouldn't squander this if it could be the very last day. Imagine what Mephibosheth would have done if he had said, you know what, I'm, I'm giving up. I'm tired of stinking. I'm tired of being filthy. I'm going to go wash up, clean up. And then the next thing you knew, he turned around and here comes David walking down the street. You may say, well, preacher, why would that have mattered? Well, remember, I don't know, remember what had happened here. Ziba had lied about Mephibosheth and had said that Mephibosheth was trying to steal the throne away from David, that he was a part of this insurrection against David and he was going to split off the house of Saul and create his own kingdom. Had he just went and lived as he had at any other time, it would have probably said to David, you know, what Ziba said is probably true. So in other words, his willingness to live differently, it was a testimony to others at his love and devotion for King David. You know, if we really want people to believe that we're serious about the Lord, we're going to have to live differently than the world that hates him and nailed him to a cross. I understand that may be that may be profound. No, no, it's not. It's simple, but it is important. How could we claim that we love the Lord when we live exactly like the world that hates Him? Mephibosheth said, how can I live exactly like all these other people that kick David off the throne and then expect David to believe that I love him and that he's precious to me? I'd say by his patience we can tell 
he was looking and longing for the king's return. Number two, I think we can tell this by his peace. So what do you mean, preacher? Well, look down in verse 25. The Bible says it came to pass when he was come to Jerusalem, when David was come to Jerusalem, or when Mephibosheth was come to Jerusalem to meet the king, that the king said unto him, Wherefore winnest not thou with me, Mephibosheth? Now remember what has transpired here. Mephibosheth, when David is leaving Jerusalem, he looks at Ziba, his servant, and says, I want you to get a donkey ready, get, a, get an animal ready. I want to I want to ride and I want to follow King David. Ziba says, all right, I'll go do that. He walks out, saddles up a donkey, then climbs on himself and goes following after David. He leaves Mephibosheth laying there, helpless and unable to move. Ziba comes to King David and he's got this donkey that's laid it down with a bunch of goodies and a bunch of food, raisins, clusters of raisins and, and figs and Reese's cups and all kinds of stuff. And, and he brings it to King David. And David says, what meanest thou by these things? And Ziba says, well, I brought these things so that you have provision because I believe in you, David. I'm on your side. I, I think this is a great thing that, uh, that or a terrible thing that Absalom has done, but I, I, I'm with you. David says, well, what about Mephibosheth? Where's Mephibosheth? Where's your master? And he says, oh, Mephibosheth, he's already done sided with Absalom, and he's hoping to wrestle the throne back away from you. Uh, by the way, David, in response to that, he takes away the land that belongs rightfully now to Mephibosheth and gives it to Ziba. I'd say this, uh, Mephibosheth had every reason to have hard feelings, wouldn't you think? What does he say? He answered, my lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For thy servant said, I will saddle me an ass that I may ride thereon and go to the king, because thy servant is lame. And he hath slandered thy servant unto my lord the king. Now, if we're not careful, that'll sound like a bitter man. But notice the next statement he makes. But my lord the king is as an angel of God. In other words, Mephibosheth is saying, I've been done this wrong. I've been abused. I've been lied about. I've been manipulated. But I knew one of these days, David, you was coming back. And I knew that you, as the angel, as the administrator of God's justice, one day you'd come back and you'd set everything right. And in spite of all of this, David, no matter what they did to me, I never got angry at you, David. I always knew that you were in the right, no matter what happened. This is a man that has great peace. Why does he have peace? Because he knows the king's coming back. And we can see that peace that he has. He has peace, number one, through the forgiveness of past grievances. You know something that Mephibosheth, or that, you know something he doesn't do here? He doesn't say, and by the way, why don't you smite Ziba? Because he's a real scoundrel. Now that sounds like something I'd say, but that's not what Mephibosheth says. He never asked David to execute judgment upon Ziba. Later on, David sort of answers him in, in, in really kind of an unkind, kind of a curt way. He says, uh, uh, you know, why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I've said thou and Ziba divide the land. And I mean, if, if there was still bitterness in the heart of Mephibosheth, he would have bucked against that. He would have argued against that. I probably would have. I would have said, uh, what, how is that right, King David? He lied about me. He deceived you. That's not right. Instead, Mephibosheth says, as long as the king is here, I'm okay. He puts all that behind him. You know why? Because he knows, number one, it's not worth hanging on to this because sooner or later the king's going to come back and he's going to set things right anyway. But number two, he was so focused on David coming back, he didn't care one way or the other whether or not he had these things in the first place. You know, if we really believe the Lord's coming back, that gives us the peace we need to move through a lot of bitterness and a lot of anger. Not because we're not delegitimizing that. It's, it's not that it didn't happen. It's not that it wasn't hurtful. It's just it don't matter if the king's coming back. He's going to set things right anyway. I would say through the forgiveness of past grievances, but also through faith in God's providence. He says, do therefore what is good in thine eyes. He says, David, 
I trust you. These ills have happened to me. These wrongs have happened to me. And it's not fair. And I'm not happy about it. But I believe you were coming back. And now that you're back, I trust that you'll handle this in whatever is the appropriate way. He trusted that David was in control and David would do the right thing. You know, the peace that we have as believers resides basically in two things. One, this hostile world that we're living in is not our home. We're leaving this world one day. It's not going to be where, it's not our eternal state. But then number two, the fact that one of these days we have a just God that is going to set all matters right. And we can trust Him no matter what happens. People despair when they get the perspective that this life is all there is and is ever what there will be. But when we are reminded that this is not the eternal state of things, when we're reminded this isn't the end, this is just a process, this is just a moment, then we recognize that, hey, there's reason to have hope and peace even in these days. You could tell it by the peace that he had. That he wasn't yoked to that land. He wasn't attached to this life. He was just looking for the king. That's all. You can see it by his praise. Look at verse 28. He says this, For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet didst thou set thy servant among them that did eat at thine own table. What right therefore have I yet to cry any more unto the king? You can almost tell in his statement here. He, he says, What right have I yet to cry any more unto the king? David evidently knew that Mephibosheth had clear grounds to accuse him of injustice in this moment. And Mephibosheth, knowing that, replies by saying, why would I have any right to complain to you about anything? If I was where you found me, I wouldn't have anything in the first place. If you had left me down in Lodabar, we wouldn't even be talking about land. I didn't have land in the first place. I was a dead man just laying down there waiting for the clock to run out. And you saved me, you redeemed me, you changed me. What right do I have? to complain about you. In other words, we can tell it. Notice the source of his praise. This story of how he was redeemed, pulled out of the trash bin uh, of history and, and set, given a place at the king's table. You know, he never got over that. He never got over that. That became the defining story of his life. Isn't it interesting? He has more to say about that than he has to say about the wrongs that have been done to him. Oh my! He has more to say about that than he does about the wrongs that have been done to him. Part of our problem is we spend more time talking about the wrongs been done to us than the right that God has done for us. Uh, we spend more time talking about how we've been done wrong than how we've been redeemed. And no wonder we, we're glum. No wonder we're discouraged. No wonder we live in darkness when that happens. Uh, part of the secret to Mephibosheth's peace and his joy was he never forgot what David had done. So even when David does things he doesn't understand, even when he can't make sense of what's happening, he says, you know, I don't have to doubt that David loves me. I remember when he picked me up out of Lodabar and brought me all the way here and made me a child of the king and set me at his table. I mean, hey, you can't tell me he don't love me after he's done all that for me. I see the source of his praise and then I see the satisfaction of his praise. I like what he says. What right? You know, there's a lot of things that are rights today that weren't rights two minutes ago. There are things that are rights today that can't be construed as rights in anyone's conceivable mind. Uh, and part of the reason for that is we have derived the concept, even though we say in our Constitution that, that we're given these uh, inalienable rights, we're endowed uh, by our Creator with them, we really don't believe that. We believe government gives us permission to have rights. The government creates rights. Uh, you know, let me say this, when you got born again, you lost any right 
to claim your life for yourself or to criticize God. Now, listen, before I sound too harsh this morning, there are times that we can question God, but we shouldn't criticize God. Uh, What David was waiting for, he was waiting for Mephibosheth to lay into him to say, you've been unfair to me, you've been unjust to me, you took away that land, that land belonged to me, you gave it to Ziba, he's a liar, he's a cheat, he's a scoundrel. I mean, you can almost see David flinching, just waiting for it to be right into. Mephibosheth said, complain? Complain? (laughs) How can I complain about you, David? You're the one that saved me, you're the one that redeemed me, you're the one that brought me up out of Lodabar. I wouldn't have had nothing if it hadn't been for you, David. So what right do I have to cry unto thee, to complain unto thee? I'd say this, the better perspective we have on how good and glorious God saved us, the more content we'll be with the things that transpire in our life. He said, I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. (laughs) I'm good. What do you think about it, Mephibosheth? You've been lied about. Say, I'm good. I'm redeemed. What do you think about Mephibosheth? Half your land's been stolen. I'm good. I shouldn't have had any of it in the first place. What do you think about it, Mephibosheth? People done lied about you, stole from you. They've done you every way that can be done. What do you think about it, Mephibosheth? He'd say, I'm okay. I was a dead dog. I shouldn't even be breathing the air I'm breathing. I shouldn't be up here in Jerusalem. i got no business being here. But for the grace of the king, I find myself in this place. Well, how could I ever look at him and say, you've done me wrong. You've done me wrong. I see his praise. And then I would say this, we can tell it by his priorities. We can tell he was really, he was looking for the king to come back. You know how we can tell that? We can tell it by what was important to him. Notice number one, what was trivial to him. What didn't matter to him. The king said unto him, why speakest thou any more of thy matters? I have said, thou and Zeba divide the land. Now, uh, this is not a light thing that David has said. This is the, the, the finances. This is the living, the, the livelihood of a man that is crippled and has no ability to provide for himself any other way. It is not too much to say uh, that he is literally setting the course for Mephibosheth's destiny by this statement. Thou and Ziba divide the land. He is defrauding him of what rightfully belonged to him. He is taking away half of all that he could ever hope for. You know, the Bible tells us that Mephibosheth had a son by the name of Micah. He's not just taking away half of what Mephibosheth has. He's taking away half of what Micah has too. You'd think Mephibosheth would have said, no, no, hold on. Wait a minute, David. We need to discuss this. Look what he says. (laughs) Mephibosheth, verse 30, Mephibosheth said to the king, yea, let him take all. I don't want any of it. You know what it tells us? It tells us that there were certain things that mattered an awful lot to Ziba that didn't matter a lick to Mephibosheth. You know what he didn't care about? Number one, he didn't care about worldly position. He has now been put on equal footing with his servant. That should have bothered him by most of the world's standards today. I'll never forget one of my favorite stories. I I, I was uh, I was a youth pastor and and, and uh, at the church I grew up in, and I had a, a precious special relationship with 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 the pastor. He was he was like Paul to me, and I was like Timothy to him. And and, and he was just I, I mean I, I admired him so much. I remember one day we were we were going to a, a meeting, one of these big meetings that you go to, and they had us at this table. They was feeding us this fancy dinner. 
I was so proud to be sitting there with him. I was sitting right, I mean, I was at the seat right beside him. I was so proud to be sitting with him and, and people would come up, they'd talk to him and they, you know, they'd see me and man, I mean, it just, it was a big, what an honor that was to sit there. I mean, here, I am, I'm the youth pastor. I, I, I'm, I'm, he's my mentor. I'm here. What a precious thing. I remember this man came up to the table and uh, was talking to Brother Bob. That was my pastor. And, uh, he looked over and he said, uh, now who is this that you've got with me? And Brother Bob said, that's my secretary, and turned around. <laughs> and I guess that day I found out I wasn't the youth pastor, I was his secretary, amen? Imagine that. <laughs> you, you can imagine what's happened to Ziba here. He just went being from the master to being on equal footing with the servant. He went from being the sole owner of this to now owning only a half an interest in it. You know, you'd think that would have insulted him. didn't bother him. You know why? Because after all, worldly positions don't matter in the first place. As far as he's concerned, he's just happy to not be dead down in Lodabar. He didn't need prosperity. He didn't need prominence. He didn't need position. He didn't need any of these things. You know why? Because none of that mattered in the first place. None of it mattered. He, he had that once and lost it like that on a person's life. It must not be that lasting of a thing. So he says, What's, what does it matter? I don't care what they call me. Just make sure that I can be where the king's at. You know, in our life, the worldly prominence position that's offered to it don't mean much. It don't mean much. I mean, you see this, you see this all the time, man. Someone's a hero today, they're a villain tomorrow. If your sense of purpose and, and, and satisfaction in life is vested in what people think about you, I'm sorry, wait about two seconds and it will change. It better be settled in something else. He didn't value worldly position. He didn't value worldly possessions. He said, let him have all of it. I don't care. You know why he could say that? Because he ate at the king's table. <laughs> And that was something that hadn't been revoked. At no place did David say, you can no longer eat at my table. So all that other stuff was just excess anyway. Now, I got a lot of excess things in my life. I got a whole garage full of excess things in my life. I've got, I've got junk drawers in my house. Think about the day we're living in. We have whole drawers that are junk drawers. That we admit that the things we put in there we could throw away and would not miss them in life. But we don't. We buy special furniture just to keep this junk in. And I don't begrudge that. I'm like that. You're like that. I'm not saying you're unspiritual for being like that. Uh, I'm not saying I'm unspiritual, but I'm just saying this. we got a lot of excess in life. And, and uh, one of the things that's been used today to squeeze people, to coerce people, to control people, is threatening that excess. They can't threaten the substance. You know why? Because he feeds the sparrows of the air. He clothes the lilies of the field. <laughs> hey, listen, David had already figured this out. I've been young and now I'm old. Yet have I never seen the righteous forsaken or his seed begging bread. They can't touch the essentials because those are in the hand of God. So they got to go after the excess. Say, preacher, how do I navigate through this world? We'll do what Mephibosheth did. Say, well, let them have the excess. Who cares? I can't take it with me. You ever seen a, 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 a hearse pulling a U-Haul? You ain't going to take it with you. So he says, what does it matter to me? Anyway, he just abandoned. He says, I don't care. He abandons all of it. But what was important to him? There were some things he didn't care about. We see what was trivial. What was valuable to him? Two things. Notice it and I'm done. He says, for as much as my Lord the King is come again. You know what he wanted more than anything else? He wanted to feel the King's embrace once more. He just wanted to be in his presence. Nothing else mattered to him. If he could have fellowship with the King, if he could be where the King was, 
If he could have the king in his life, that's all that mattered to him. You know, if we really believe, if the, if the heartbeat of our life is the return of the Lord Jesus, then nothing will give us greater peace, comfort, encouragement, or satisfaction than fellowship with Him even now in this life. Spiritual fellowship through prayer, through studying the Bible, through worshiping the Lord. Hey, that ought to mean something to us. I'm just going to say that again. That ought to mean something to us. That's a precious thing. It ought to mean something to us to be able to worship the Lord. It ought to be precious to us. He just wanted to feel the king's embrace. But notice what he says here. He says, For as much as my Lord the king has come again in peace unto his own house. He wasn't just happy the king was back. He was happy the king was back on the throne. What he wanted was twofold. He wanted to fellowship with the king in his presence, but he wanted to see the king enthroned as well. He was just thrilled at the idea that everybody would finally see and recognize that David is the rightful king. He just wanted David to get glory. He just wanted David to get majesty and, and praise. He didn't care nothing about himself. All he cared about was that David would sit on the throne. I wonder sometimes if, if we are more excited about sinners getting what is deserved to them than we are about the Savior getting what is deserved to Him. I wonder sometimes if we're more focused on the idea of, of, of retribution than we are at the coronation. The idea that he's going to get back at him, all those people done us wrong, going to get back at him, or whether we're more excited at the fact that one day this world is going to own the glorious majesty of the Lord. Recognize every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Hey, listen, you say, what should we be excited about? What are the things that should thrill us? Do you remember one time the disciples came to Jesus? They said, you ain't going to believe this, Jesus. Even the devils are subject to us. We can make them do what we want. We can make them bow the knee. We can tell them what to do. Jesus said, well, boys, I guess that's okay, but that's really not what you ought to be excited about. He said, rejoice not that the devils are subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your name is written in heaven. He said, you ought to be a lot more excited about what's going on up there than you are about what's going on down here. You ought to be a lot more excited about the eternal matters than you are about the temporal matters. I'd say if we really believe that he's coming back, that's going to change our priorities. We're not going to be so excited about worldly positions, possessions, those things. Man, they all they all burn up. I mean, listen, we got to have food to eat. I'm going to leave out of here and find some place to eat some food somewhere. I, I don't begrudge you that. That ain't what matters, the worldly possessions. The worldly position is not what matters. What matters is that heavenly relationship with the Lord. And what matters ultimately uh, in our lives is that we use our lives for the glory of God and that we see that the Lord is glorified in uh, so let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open. And I don't know what the Lord may have spoken to you about. There's several things in the message I could see the Lord dealing with a person uh, about. But He may have dealt with you about something entirely different, entirely separate than anything that was mentioned, than anything that was talked about. And if He did, uh, you go ahead and mind Him. You come, come find a place down here. Open your heart to Him. Be honest with Him. If He's speaking to you about something, go ahead and agree with Him about it. Don't argue with Him. And just yield to Him. Let Him deal with you in your heart and in your mind. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus with